Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Why would a UFO stall cars, put out lights, and fill radios with static? What was really going on in Lebanon, Texas in November of 1957? Have there been other UFO cases with dramatic electromagnetic effects? Hello, and welcome to the 939th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you from WOON, AM, and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and uh, via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and those high-minded questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And today we bring you a returning guest on a little-known subject. Dr. Kevin Randall is a preeminent UFO researcher, particularly when it comes to the reported crash of a UFO near Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. A veteran of the U.S. Army and Air Force, where he did intelligence, intelligence work, he served in the v- Vietnam and the Iraq wars. Kevin holds an undergraduate degree in journalism from the University of Iowa, a master's degree and Ph.D. in psychology from California Coast University, and a second master's degree in military studies from the American Military University. He retired from the military in 2009 as a National Guard Lieutenant Colonel. Kevin is the best-selling author of over 100 books, including the recently released Leveland, uh, the subject of our discussion today. Kevin's website and blog, Kevin Randall, that's R-A-N-D-L-E, kevinrandall.blogspot.com. So, Dr. Kevin Randall, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here again behind the paranormal. <laughs> yeah, it's been been roughly roughly a year since we've last had you on, I believe. Well, it, August of 2020. Wow. Believe, believe it or not, well, time flies and you're having fun. Ben. Well, hey, you know, time, time is not, not real. Uh, we'll, That's right. <laughs> we, we only just experience it. So I guess we'll, we'll hop right into it. Um, in your book, you say that the, the Leveland, Texas UFO case... Uh, of, of 1957 is one of the most important in UFO history. Um, what was it all about, and why is it so important? Well, as the I think the introduction suggested, the uh, object interacted with the environment. M- multiple locations independently reported the same thing. They got were approached by the UFO, or they approached the UFO. Their engine stalled, their lights went out, the radios were filled with static. Once the object left, and the cars operated properly again. The Air Force investigated it um, and sort of provides the um, proof of cover-up. They spent seven hours in Leveland. I don't know how you could adequately investigate the case in seven hours, but they concluded it was ball lightning, a phenomenon that I think the... Um, Scientific community still disputes whether or not it exists in any form. But what we do know is the reported ball lightning is something very small, something that is short-lived and level. It is glowing bright red. It was egg-shaped or torpedo-shaped, depending on the witness. Uh, and it, uh, in one case, was near the witness for about 15 minutes, according to his calculations. So we have this object interacting with the environment by stalling it. Later on, a fellow named Don Burleson uh, interviewed a number of people in the Leveland area and discovered information that suggested landing traces, meaning a burned area on a ranch north of town. So we have all this sort of evidence, the eyewitness testimony, the interaction with the environment, the um, landing traces, and the evidence of an Air Force cover-up, or at least uh, attempting to 
explain the sighting with a phenomenon that they couldn't even prove existed at the time. And that all leads us to uh, the point where we have no terrestrial explanation for what happened in Level Land, and I think that's a very important thing to uh, to know. One of the things that struck me, Kevin, was the, the, the low rank, I mean, considering the mission, the, the, the low rank of the investigators is sort of a non-commissioned officer, you know, like a sergeant. And, and I mean, is, is, was that unusual for the, the time, or do you think an officer would have been involved somewhere? The uh, organization that investigated was the 1006th Air Intelligence Service Squadron. Um, and the fact that they sent out a man who was basically an E5, right in the middle of the enlisted grades, yeah. to investigate. But he would have been trained in the investigation. He would have had experience in this sort of thing. So I know in the military we had what we called subject matter experts, and oftentimes they were of low rank. They were people who were very well versed in a specific area. And so when we had questions, we would go to them to ask those questions, no matter what our ranks were. We understood that these people understood what they were doing. I think what's more important there is not the the low rank of the investigator. His name was Norman Barth, by the way. Mm. I I think the important point is he only spent seven hours in Leveland, and at least uh, an hour, hour and a half was spent with the sheriff. So how could he investigate this thing adequately in seven hours? He only spoke to six witnesses that I can determine because there are six witnesses mentioned in the Air Force investigation. Um, But there were witnesses that uh, I was able to identify at at least 13 separate locations that independently called in. Those names were available through the news media and other means. The sheriff, um, and I hate his name. His name is Weir Clem. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it would be something like Jack Armstrong or something really (laughs) positive like that. But anyway, that was his name. He mentioned to the newspapers that he'd gotten literally hundreds of calls about this thing going on in Leveland before he went out to investigate. And one of the witnesses, by the way, is the sheriff. And what was interesting, after a number of calls, he uh, decided he should go out and take a look for himself. He was uh, accompanied by his deputy, and a car behind him was the, I believe it was, was then called the Texas Department of Public Safety, which is basically the state police or the highway patrol. And by behind them was a car populated by Air Force officers, and yet Barth never talked to the state policeman, nor did he talk to the Air Force officers. Well, he may have talked to the Air Force officers, but there's nothing in the uh, Blue Book files or anything that I can find to suggest that that interview took place. So the fact that he was low-ranking is not the important point. The important point is how long he spent in, in Leveland and what his final report said, and that is... Uh, a very, very short document that doesn't really provide us with much in the way of information about it, about the about the landings and the sightings. Well, the key uh, element here that you bring out in the book uh, on a number of occasions is there are the EM fields, electromagnetic fields, apparently, that knocked out people's uh, car engines and lights and things of this kind and had a sort of almost like an electromagnetic pulse effect. Uh, can you talk a little, more, a little bit more about that? And uh, I understand there were other cases in the area at the time with, with the same phenomenon occurred. The idea of these electromagnetic effects go back to 1909, where the first recorded case I could find was in England, where a guy approaching a field saw some kind of object in the field and a headlight on his motorcycle went out. But uh, it's not something that is um, common in UFO sightings, but it's not extremely rare either. But what happens is, as a vehicle approaches 
the object or the object approaches the vehicle, depending on how it happens, the car will either begin to stutter or the engine will die completely. The headlights will fade. The radio, if it's on, will fill with static. There's other other effects. In one case, a guy reported all the um, uh, audio tapes in his car were erased. Another guy reported that the window in his convertible, the back window, which often were were plastic as opposed to glass in the convertibles, uh, became warped and, and wasn't useful anymore. So you've got a, a variety of electromagnetic effects, and, it, and it's not just cars. Uh, we've There are reports of uh, power outages in areas where UFOs are seen. Uh, Fran Ridge and a guy named Eric Hare, Hare, Hare um, collected 145 cases, I think, of compasses being affected by close approaches of UFOs, which sort of underscores the magnetic properties of the phenomenon there. So we have a wide range of these sorts of effects. Now, what is interesting is the Condon Committee, which was the University of Colorado study financed by the Air Force, I might point out, uh, refused to go to Leveland. The, the committee took place uh, some 10 years after Leveland. They didn't bother with interviewing the witnesses or anything like that, although they did research other older cases. They didn't go there. Um, and I suspect it was because uh, the Air Force didn't want them to go there. But they mentioned in their report that um, they found these cases hard to accept because they could think of no mechanism where you would in, introduce a magnetic field to stall a car engine, and when you remove that field, the car engine would spontaneously restart. And I got to looking at that and discovered that if you go through the reports, very few people talk about the car starting spontaneously. It's the driver always has taken some action, or they say the car res- worked properly after the UFO left, which doesn't suggest the engine started spontaneously, but they could start the engine. So um, we take a look at all of that sort of thing. But as I say, you know, it's just not that. There's uh, cases of animal reaction to close approaches of UFOs. There's... Um, uh, interference with radio signals. Uh, there's a radio station in Texas. I, I was knocked off the air for a period of time, a close approach of a UFO. So we have a wide range of objects. But it is like an electromagnetic pulse, but I think the electromagnetic pulse uh, fries the electronics. And in, the, in this case, when they remove the electromagnetic field, then those electronics begin to work again properly. Well, what, one of the funny things is that, that has actually happened to me uh, although in the context of a poltergeist case, 1975. And I noticed that uh, there were a number of, of commonalities with some of my early cases and what happened in Leveland. And by the end of the 70s, I was supposed to be investigating ghost cases, and it would lead me to UFOs. If you could talk to the neighbors and the sort of thing, that, that half the time they'd say, oh, I saw funny lights on the sky or UFO landing in this field over here, and they themselves were having poltergeist activity. So... I said, we had to rewrite the book on a lot of these phenomena. They apparently seem to be connected. One of the things, too, uh, and you can comment on this, uh, I, I would ask you to comment on it, would be the uh, the notion that, uh, you know, in qu- quantum mechanics, if this multiple worlds thing is true, you've got uh, plasma-charged uh, world boundaries, uh, electromagnetic fields of all sorts of interesting kinds, that, that, you know, if they're involved in these phenomena would affect, uh, mechanical objects in, in this, in a similar way that, uh, we've described. Another thing too, it's very common if you talk to any quote unquote ghost hunters, they'll tell you that, that the power is sucked out of their batteries for this or that gizmo, you know, here and there. So do you have any comment on, on, uh, 
perhaps the universality of this problem among all cases involving the paranormal that, that would involve that sort of uh, phenomenon. I haven't really looked at um, the commonality between those sorts of reports and the, the UFO sightings. I strictly concentrated on UFO sightings that uh, I could document that there was some kind of craft seen and the um, mechanical or the electronic device reacted to that. Uh, I I do know, um, based on some of the other things I've seen, that, yeah, there's problems with electronic devices in, in uh, ghost hunting, but I never really made that connection. So that's kind of an interesting thing and something maybe I should explore a little bit. I have talked to ghost hunters about uh, their activities and their research, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of commonality between UFOs and ghost hunters. But if you're talking about some kind of parallel uh, universes or something like that, then that might be a viable explanation for some of the sightings. Yeah, well, we can talk anytime, Ben. So it is it is interesting. Um, one, one of the sort of experiences <clears throat> that, that I had, I, I ended up talking to a guy that we're friends with, Andy Kitt, um, who he was doing, he's doing, or I don't know if he ever finished it, but he was doing a PhD program specifically on the psychology of how um, we sort of of, of how we see things and like it, it was really interesting i got to discuss neurology with him and how how we how we sort of perceive reality i learned two really important things uh one is that depth perception uh is is really a lie that we can really only see um to like our depth perception is really only accurate up until where we hold out our arms and stick up our thumbs and where our thumbs are that's really where we can kind of perceive depth anything else than that is just kind of an estimated guess um, the other really important thing was um, how prior experiences with um, seeing something allows us to see it again. And and it's interesting how the human brain sort of um, organizes reality in a way so that we can understand it. And one of the really fascinating things I always find um, with anything ufology related is how people sort of perceive craft, Right. In, in in how they they sort of perceive the the experience of it. One of the fascinating things about what we're discussing is not just how it's perceived, but how it affects the environment around it. Which unfortunately, I wish there was a little bit more study on it. And it leads me to thinking about um, there were a handful of cases where there were landings. This is not not entirely unrelated, but it's different cases all over the place where there was increased radioactivity. Now, did we find something similar to that in Leveland, or or sort of effects on the environment that are that are lasting, right? You know, whether like something changed in like the soil content, or something where you know plants grow strangely anywhere, anything to that effect. I f- want to say first that my PhD dissertation was on how belief structure affects the identification of ambiguous stimuli. Ooh, that's cool. Which which is to say, if you had a predisposition to believe in UFOs and you saw a bizarre, uh, ambiguous light in the sky, you thought of it as a flying saucer, saw it as a spacecraft. If you had a very religious background, you might perceive it as angels or ghosts or something like that. So I think the experiences of the observer... Uh, tends to lead them in the direction of an identification of this ambiguous stimuli, something that uh, makes sense to them mm. uh, as opposed to what they may be seeing. It's their interpretation of it, and it's the kind of the same thing you were talking about there. The other thing is um, looking at 
uh, all of this. In, in, in Level Land specifically, uh, we had the interaction with the environment, we had the landing traces, we had the multiple witnesses, but we go beyond that and we see a little bit later, uh, two or three days later in New Mexico, we have another situation where there's a number of cars stalled by a by an object and one of the manifestations for the witness that came forward, James Stokes, was a light sunburn, but it was only on part of his face and one of his arms, not unlike Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But it was a very light sunburn, and, and it v- disappeared uh, in the matter of hours. Uh, Cor Lorenzen and Jim Lorenzen from the Aero Phenomena Research Organization, who happened to live in Alamogordo, where Stokes was located, uh, saw him within a couple of hours of the of the sighting and saw the, the sunburn, as did the uh, uh, radio station news director who um, interviewed him. But by the time the Air Force showed up to investigate, of course, the, the sunburn had faded and they couldn't see any evidence of it. So we have uh, a number of manifestations in that kind of way uh, that suggests something something unusual is going on. One of the uh, questions that I had was that um, there were a number of sightings over a relatively short period around the area. Do you think there was, this was one object involved or several? Or, or do we even know? I would guess, given the locations and that sort of thing, we're dealing with a single object in this one case, meaning in, in level land. Um, Alamogordo is, what, four hours away by car, I think. Um, the um, White Sands Missile Range, the MPs there saw something uh, within two or three hours of it ending in, in level land. Uh, I, I That could be a single object, I think. But when we expand it beyond that, we have uh, sightings um, all over the United States uh, in that time frame of people seeing something and getting close to it and their car stalling. So then we probably are dealing with more than a single object. When we look beyond just level land and and uh, the desert southwest of the United States, France in 1954 had an awful lot of sightings that had similar type things uh, and uh, it was going on also in South America at the time. So I think we're dealing with more than one object over that time span. Sp- time span. In Leveland, I, I believe it was just a single object. When we move much beyond the Leveland area and that specific area, then we're probably dealing with more than a single object. In the Leveland descriptions in the book and other cases that you cite as well, it struck me that... that this thing or these things wanted to be seen. I mean, can you comment on that? They seem to be very obvious, you know, performing, as it were, for the people in the cars. In one case, was it ten cars? Uh, at once, there was engines that went out and that sort of thing. And what, what, what say you about all that? Uh, again, I'm just not sure that we can really kind of figure out what an alien race would be doing in this sort of thing. It does seem sort of obvious. Philip Class once said something, if the UFOs didn't want to be seen, they should just turn off their lights. And that's, that's a good <laughs> comment. You know, and, and I, I wonder if uh, the propulsion may have something to do with the color. And so they have no way of masking that or don't bother to mask it. Uh, they may not care that they're being seen. Uh, I just, I really don't know. And you're right, uh, the, the Stokes sighting took place near Oro Grande, New Mexico, which is between Alamogordo and um, El Paso, Texas, on, on a highway there. And um, I think he said six or seven cars were stalled. He was the seventh or eighth car that 
pulled over the highway and he talked to a number of the people there. Uh, the Air Force never managed to find any of those other people, but neither did the Lorenzans who were looking for them. And I suspect the reason they couldn't find it by the time the Stokes sightings took place, which was two or three days later, um, people had seen the way the witnesses in Leveland had been treated, and not only that, uh, seen the way some of the other witnesses had been treated by the military, so they would be reluctant to come forward. With Stokes, he was an engineer at Alamogordo at the Holloman Air Force Base. The Air Force spent a lot of time explaining that he wasn't an engineer. He didn't have a degree in engineering or something like that, and yet the Air Force officers at Holloman were saying, yes, he's an engineer. We were employing him as engineer. His job description is an engineer. So the Air Force is attempting to smear the guy who's reporting it while other elements of the Air Force are trying to, to support the guy and say, no, no, you're wrong about this. But I think the witnesses see how some of the people are treated and they just don't bother to come forward. Uh, the sheriff in Level Land, for example, um, I think it's more like dozens of calls, but he said he got hundreds of calls, maybe 200 calls about this thing in the Level Land area in a period of uh, a very short period of time. So it was uh, something that was not attempting to hide itself. The glowing red redness, the bright glow of the of the object, uh, kind of gave it away like that. When we move beyond level land, we don't necessarily have a glowing object. Some of them are seen in the daylight, so they don't. There's no real glow associated with them, and that sort of thing. Others are just kind of there um, in the evening or something like that. But in level land, we had a brightly glowing object. The sheriff even commented on it, and that's another thing I should point out. The sheriff, when he led his many convoy out there, and according to the Air Force report, he only saw a streak of light for about two seconds in the distance, a streak of red light. But you look at the newspaper clippings prior to that, he was talking about seeing an oval-shaped object that was much closer, but the Air Force investigation only has him within 900 yards of the thing, which is, what, a half a mile away, and just a streak of light in the sky. Then a fellow named Don Berliner interviewed the sheriff in the mid-1970s, um, you know, 10, 15 years after the event, and the sheriff is again talking about seeing a glowing, brightly glowing red football-shaped or oval-shaped object. Uh, one of the things that Don Burlinson found, and yeah, I'm getting a lot of Dons in this story. Here, Don Burlinson, <laughs> who investigated, we haven't even got the Don Quixote yet. So. Uh, Don Corleone, either. Yeah, mm. <laughs> but, but uh, when Burlinson uh, did his investigation, he managed to track down the mechanic for the sheriff's department at the time, and it said the day after this happened, the sheriff brought his car in to have it serviced, have it looked at. The only reason I can think of the sheriff would have done that in that time frame was because his car stalled. And if his car stalled, then the cars behind him stalled, which would have been the state police, the Texas Department of Public Safety. Mm -hmm. And if that car stalled, then the one behind them, which would have been the um, Air Force officers, their car stalled. So now we have a group, a large group of people who were together when their car is stalled. Uh, we have evidence from the mechanic that the sheriff's car was looked at, but you have to wonder how come there's no investigation of the Air Force officers who were involved in this thing and their car stalling. Mm. And I do have documentation to show the Air Force officers were involved, but there's no documentation to suggest that BARF, the low-ranking NCO that came down from Ent Air Force Base in Colorado Springs to investigate this, ever talked to the Air Force officers. So I wonder where those reports went. That's really interesting. I, I feel like... Uh, through through this whole this whole story, the the Air Force almost has conflicting goals. You know, it's, at some points they're they're cooperating, at some points they're not. W what was the overall goal of the Air Force in this whole scenario? When we get to 1957, the Air Force um, mission was to explain UFO sightings. 
That was it. That was their mission. Mm-hmm. There's a number of documentation from the Project Blue Book file suggesting that they, well, probable explanations should be the real explanation. Possible explanations become probable explanations. When we look at, as I say, with Level Land, they've offered a number of explanations. One of them, uh, Level Land is in the Permian Basin. Uh, which goes, by the way, all the way to Roswell, the Permian oil basin, and they do a lot of oil drilling and recovery there. Hmm. And they would, you would see them burning off the natural gas on the oil wells. And they, so one of the explanations was, well, it was a cloudy night and it was uh, low overcast and the flames from this burning of the natural gas off the oil rigs would have uh, been reflected from the clouds and may have given the impression of, of uh, something in the sky. And I'm thinking, yeah, the people lived there all their lives and they're going to be fooled by this on this one night. <laughs> Um, but the other problem is we have weather reports, and the, what we find, and ironically, one of the reports comes from Roswell, is that there was a four-tenths cloud cover. So the sky is not completely covered. It's not even half covered. And when you look at, um, in aviation reports, when it means you know 40%, 40% of the sky is overcast, what it means is cloud cover. What it means is clouds at various levels. It doesn't mean it's all one solid block of clouds. It's various clouds around. So um, that idea of them reflecting from the cloud simply doesn't work. Um, there was the reports that the um, it had been raining or drizzling in the area, but the weather reports don't bear that out. And uh, Dr. James McDonald, who was an atmospheric physicist, as a matter of fact, uh, talked about this as well. And he said he talked to people in the area, and they said, no, the sky was basically clear. So it kind of wipes out another of their explanations. The point simply is the Air Force spent a lot of time trying to explain these sightings and finally settled on the, the ball lightning explanation. But once we get um, look at the the entirety of the UFO investigations, it began in 1948 with Project Sign, officially in 1948 with Project Sign, and they attempted to do a serious investigation at that point until they realized there was no imminent threat to the United States, and then the Air Force Chief of Staff was given a report called an estimate of the situation about what was going on. He didn't like the conclusions, and at that point the whole um, attitude of the Air Force changed about UFOs, and they just didn't bother with them. They didn't care until Ed Ruppelt came in in late uh, 1951, and he was ordered to revitalize the program, and that became Project Blue Book. So we have a history of going from Project Sign to Project Grudge to Project Blue Book. It's a one continuous project. They just... uh, change the names. So he did a legitimate investigation and almost uh, half of the unidentified cases come from that period when Rupert was in charge of Project Blue Book. But in January of 1953, the CIA studied the problem of UFOs and determined that there was really nothing to it. I think it was a predisposed solution that, that they were, this is what they were going to find no matter what was presented to them. And from that point on, the Air Force began a campaign to explain all UFO sightings in some way. And it didn't matter if the explanations didn't fit the facts. It didn't really matter what the witnesses said. We we would belittle the witnesses. And we saw this all, all through the Leveland case, belittling the witnesses. The, the MPs in, in uh, White Sands were, well, they were, they were young. They were uneducated. They got hysterical about UFOs. And I'm thinking, why? By the time uh, they learned that something was going on in the rest of the country, uh, they'd already had their sightings. They were not induced by those uh, sightings because uh, they hadn't heard of them at the time. It wasn't where we had instantaneous gratification in the way of putting something on Instagram or Facebook uh, where you could, I just was stopped by a UFO type thing. It mm-hmm. was 
hours before they learned that there were other sightings going on. So you didn't have that kind of hysteria. But the Air Force problem was to uh, belittle them. And I, I was I was most disturbed by their suggestions that, uh, well, they were very young, 20, 21 years old. And uh, so, you know, they, they they were caught up in this hysteria and they were just immature. And I'm thinking, my goodness, when I, when I was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, uh, we had a guy we called Papa because he was the oldest pilot signed to the flights. He was 23. <laughs> I was I was 19, and, and I'm charged as an aircraft commander, so I'm thinking, you know, they trusted me with their equipment and the lives of my crew and the passengers I carried and that sort of thing. And yet they're now we're saying the guys are 20, 21, and they're MPs, and they've been trained as MPs. Well, they got hysterical, and you can't trust what they say, and they're poorly educated. I talked to one of the MPs, and he was telling me that the object came down within 50 yards of them. So it wasn't something seen in the sky. The Air Force said, I think, that they saw the moon, were surprised by the moon, and I think that... Uh, uh, they were talking about how it was down below the horizon, the, the mountains in the background. It, it, it came down close enough that they could see it against the background of the mountains. And the, the other crew, the other MP that saw them about 12 years later, 12, 12 years, 12 hours later, um, were, uh, said they, they had seen Venus. And so the Air Force is just busy investigating sightings. So the answer to the question is long, long, point is the Air Force investigation after 1953 was geared specifically to explain UFO sightings, period, end of discussion. Mm -hmm. When they commissioned the Condon Committee to investigate the UFO sightings for them, the conclusions were written prior to the investigation's beginning. And we have the documentation to prove that. There was a letter from a lieutenant colonel named Robert Hippler to the Condon Committee and says, here's what we want you to find in your investigation, that there's no threat to national security, that the Air Force did a good job of investigating UFOs, and there's no scientific value in continuing the investigation. And when the Condon Committee completed their investigation 18 months later, what do you suppose they found? Well, there was no reason to uh, continue scientific investigation of the phenomenon. There was no threat to national security, and the Air Force had done a good job. So they did what they were what they were supposed to do, and Project Blue Book was closed at that time. The problem is, we know based on documentation that the Condon Committee ran up ran up against a national security issue while they were doing the investigation of the UFOs. Mm. Uh, it happened in Belt, Montana. I think it was 1967 where a flight of missiles, uh, Maelstrom Air Force bases, located in that area, and they have the missile fields out 90, 100 miles away from the base. And one of the flights of 10 missiles was shut down uh, by the close approach of a UFO. The Air Force says, well, there was no UFO sighting in the area, but there's all kinds of UFO sightings in the area. And, and the point simply is, there was supposedly no way that a missile flight could be shut down by an outside force. And... If that information got out, it tells our competitors that there is some some way to do it. Mm. Uh, we may not have the technology to do it, but there is some way to do it, and it would cause them to look for that uh, that way to do it. So that became a national security implication. And the Air Force, uh, the Condon Committee investigator who was in Belt, Montana, talking to the assigned UFO officer at Maelstrom Air Force Base, um, told was telling him about the sightings in the Belt Monteria, which were in the newspapers and in that sort of area. Uh, and the um, investigator asked about the missile shutdown, and the, the UFO investigator, uh, the, the Air Force officer, says, I can't talk about that. That's a matter of national security. Uh, 
So Condon Committee ran up against national security and investigation of a UFO, and they said, well, there's no national security implications. Well, clearly there were. Mm. So that's the long, long, long answer to your question about what was going on. By the time we get to 1957, the mission of the Air Force has explained UFO sightings, period. Mm. Uh, Well, let's take our mid-show break, uh, more or less. And uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. On WOON, 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful and sunny Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our great guest in just a moment. What am I forgetting here? Nothing. Okay. I don't know. (laughs) Well, we'll be back with Kevin Randall in just a second, so stay with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late-night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnye.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, our great guest. Uh, today we're talking about the Leveland uh, uh, UFO sightings and related materials with the great Kevin Randall. And I wanted to point out to our listeners uh, that his book, uh, UFOs and the Deep State, is really an eye-opening history of the entire uh, relationship between gov- the government and the subject of UFOs. Mm. Uh, why the Air Force did what it did, and uh, all this sort of things. So I would I would prefer people to that to that great book. So, um, Kevin, before we proceed, uh, you know we're burning up the hour pretty quickly here. Uh, first of all, thank you for your long and distinguished service. Yes. And uh, could you tell us uh, about uh, where people can find out more, get the books, your blog site, etc. Well, absolutely. Of course, the books are all available at Amazon. Uh, and the latest book happens to be Understanding Roswell, which is a re-examination of the Roswell case, looking at uh, some of the things in depth. For example, I look at the uh, uh, top officers at the Roswell base and give a little bit of a biography of their background so you can see who they were and, and how, how their lives progressed after seeing the UFOs. Um, of course, there's... there's um, Leveland, which deals in depth with the Leveland sightings and the idea of electromagnetic effects. And as you mentioned, I think UFOs in the deep state shows, uh, provides an answer to the question that I used to be asked all the time. Why, why does the government hide the idea of UFOs? You know, it's, it, especially in today's environment, we're used to the ideas of space travel. We've seen all these movies about, um, travel through the, uh, interstellar space and we've, we've actually launched the spacecraft into interstellar space, the, the probe that flew by Pluto not long ago in the Voyager. Uh, spacecraft that are now out in deep space, deep, deep space, and that sort of thing. Why would they persist in this idea that UFOs are uh, something to be scoffed at? Uh, you know, people's attitudes is uh, they've been around for 70 years or more, 75 years or more. Um, I realize it does not affect my life in any way, shape, or form. Why should I be concerned about it? And I think the answer is the people in power. And when we look at the structure of the government, yes, we elect the president every four years. We elect our senators every six years. We elect the representatives every uh, two years. But that they're the transitional power structure in Washington, D.C. What The power really lies in the bureaucrats that stay there from administration to administration to administration. And you look at who President Biden has appointed to his cabinet and who his top advisors are, and they're same, many of the same people who were Barack Obama. And you look at the, the Bush 
and the, the Trump, it's, it's sort of the same thing. And we get back to the Clinton administrations and we see the, the people continuing those, those positions. And I think it's about retaining their power as retaining the financial benefits of being in that power. So we have these bureaucrats who are not really beholden to the administrations controlling the information. And in the deep state, I pointed out, you know, well, why can't the president get to the, the information? Mm. And that was, I was, I always said, if I'm the president, I can get the information. I go to my director of central intelligence. I tell me all you can about UFOs. And if he says, well, no, Mr. President, you don't have the clearances to see this material. My next uh, thought is, you're fired. Bring in your deputy. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'll ask him the question. But it turns out it doesn't really work that way. Uh, when Jimmy Carter became president, he was talking to George H.W. Bush, who was the director of central intelligence at the time, and. They were having a discussion about the transition government. Uh, Carter was the president-elect. And Carter says to Bush, I want to know all this information about UFOs. And Bush says to him, well, I would like to stay on as the director of central intelligence after you, you know, after you're inaugurated. And Carter says, I'm bringing my own guy in. And Bush says, well, I can't tell you this stuff because you're not the president yet. So then you have to wonder, well, then how come... Um, Carter's guy couldn't get the information. Well, then, of course, he's a transitional guy as well. But I think the uh, the additional answer is the way they dodge the question. You go to the director of Central Intelligence and say, I would like all your information about UFOs. And he says, well, you know, Mr. President, this is a multi-organizational investigation. Let me pull the information together for you so we can give you a comprehensive report. And somehow that comprehensive report never gets done. And we just had a perfect example of that with that June uh 25th report that was supposed to go to Congress that told them about what was going on in the uh, world of UFOs with the ATIP program and the Tic Tacs and all of that sort of thing. And when all is said and done, what do we end up with? We get a C-minus high school report. Well, there were 144 reports. What does that mean? Were there 144 incidents or were there multiple witnesses to a smaller number of uh, incidents? Uh, we, we just don't know anything. We have no uh, information about that. We don't know what was going on. And then there was a supposedly classified version that was given to the Congress. Well, my good friend John Greenwald at his Black Vault, uh, blackvault.com has the information up there. He just got the um, classified version that went to Congress, but it's heavily redacted. And one of the things people can't understand was there's a, a listing or a title talking about shapes of UFOs, and the whole thing is redacted. The, the whole discussion of shapes is redacted. Nobody figured out why would the shapes be considered national security or why are they classified. So what we end up with is this thing going on. After the June 25th investigation or a report, they said we'll have another report in 90 days, which would have been October 25th. But that never happened. Instead, right. we now have congressional uh, mandate, a congressional um, law passed that we're going to create another office to investigate UFOs with some cumbersome name that is completely and totally ridiculous, um, to investigate UFOs. We've been doing that for 75 years. We're back where we were 75 years ago when Nathan Twining, who was the uh, commanding general of the Air Material Command, said, we're going to do an investigation of UFOs. And he put out a letter saying, this is something that is not illusionary or fictitious. It is something real, and we're going to investigate it seriously with a project, which became Project Sign. Here we are, 75 years later. We're no closer to the answers than we were then. And now we have, well, we're going to do another project, 
And now we learn that it's going to be born classified, which means simply that the military pilots and observers who see these UFOs, that information is going to be classified before it even gets into the public. So we're right back where we were 75 years ago. No, entirely agreed. Uh, ben and I often are invited to speak at uh, UFO conferences, and we're on panels with uh, you know some of the big names and sort of thing. And they'll, they'll all speak learnedly on disclosure. You know, they'll all come this year. And, and they get to me or Ben and we'll look out at the audience and say, okay, uh, show of hands, who here believes what the government says? And of course everybody groans. And of course the, the, uh, point being that, uh, if anything is released, it'll be inaccurate or incomplete or, you know, it's, I don't have to tell you, Kevin, you, you know, better than anybody. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Anyway, it's it's not a very uh, pleasant situation to, to discuss. The whole notion of Project Blue Book in our last few minutes here, uh, Stanton Friedman always said the Blue Book was a PR exercise. They had like, what, five people at the most and they really didn't accomplish anything. I mean, what's your opinion on Blue Book? The documentation proves it. There's all kinds of documentation that suggests it, and there were, there were letters in the 1950s saying we need to move we need to move Blue Book out of ATEC uh, or the intelligence function into the Office of Information, which means it becomes public relations. And while there were five people assigned specifically to Blue Book in Dayton, Ohio, at, at, at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, there was uh, an extra duty on almost every Air Force Base, a required extra duty, where someone was appointed the UFO officer who would gather the information. Uh, there was also, you know, the, it started out as the um, the the, the uh, 4602nd Air Intelligence Service Squashing, and it evolved through a number of different names and became the eventually the 1127th Air uh, services group or something like that. I forget the name of it now. And then it became something else with another n- numerical designation. But they had responsibility for investigating UFOs. Uh, but the, we don't know where all those reports went. They didn't necessarily all go to Blue Book. We know that there was something called Project, I would say Project Mundus. I just uh, handed in a book which will be coming out again, an updated version of my book on Project Blue Book or Project Mundust. Uh, that there was no Project Mundust. That was a code name actually for investigations into UFOs. I found four or five cases in the Project Blue Book files that were labeled Moon Dust, and this was something that transcended Blue Book. So when it ended in 1969, Moon Dust continued, and we know it went into at least 1985 when the name was compromised, and a fellow named Robert Todd uh, submitted a FOIA request asking for what the new name was, and he was told that the name was... um, Properly classified. Couldn't even tell you the name of the of the group organizing the code name for gathering this material. So when Stan says it was public relations, he's absolutely correct. The documentation proves it. Proves it. But there were more people involved in the investigation than just the people in in Dayton, Ohio. And normally it was a master sergeant who um, master sergeant or tech sergeant who went out on the investigations. Um, Heineck was the scientific consultant. And he would go out on investigations. He was in Socorro, for example. I don't think he ever had anything to do with Leveland. I couldn't find any documentation to suggest that. Um, so the the staff was in in Dayton was was pretty small, but there was uh, organizations they could call on for assistance when they needed it. So you know the simple answer is yeah, it was public relations, it, but it wasn't limited to the five people in um, in Dayton, Ohio. Is a little bit larger than that. But their core mission was to uh, explain sightings any way they could and make the Air Force look good. 
Absolutely. Make, make it look like the Air Force was doing its job. The Air Force mission is to keep our skies clear of intruders, whoever those intruders might be, where they're competitors in the, um, in, in the world here, uh, air, airliners off course, um, or alien spacecraft. Their, their mission is to intercept these things and identify them and, and keep our sky safe. And they're sort of abdicating one of those responsibilities by ignoring the UFO materials. Uh, in today's environment, it may be a little bit different. I'm sure it'll change here when they get the offices up and running. But for the longest time after 1969, if you would call the local Air Force base and say, I have a UFO sighting, their response was, well, if you feel threatened by it, call the local sheriff or the local police department. We don't do that anymore. But we know they did that because we do find instances where the Air Force investigated UFO sightings after they supposedly officially stopped doing that. Now, have you yourself ever had a UFO sighting? Oh, I hate this question because Uh, I used to say no. Sorry. Well, I, I, I used to say no, but the sighting that we had was really, really terrible. Um, I was a member of the Denver UFO Society when I was a, still in high school. And uh, we had a big meeting uh, down in Castle Rock, Colorado. Um, and I think it was most of the day and into the evening. And we were sitting around the campfire at night. And we watch a light cross the sky going from south to north, I believe it was, got directly overhead and flashed once. And the, the people would be saying, oh, look, they're signaling us, and it disappeared. Well, my friend and I tried to determine whether or not there was a satellite in orbit, in a polar orbit like that, that, we, that would have been visible to us at that time frame, and we could never identify it. So basically what I saw was a light cross the sky that we couldn't identify, which may have been a side, it might have been a classified project, so we couldn't have found the information, but we never were able to identify it. But that's, that's the extent of my UFO sighting. Well, I mean, okay. it does, it does fit the bare minimum, you know, unidentified flying <laughs> objects, so <laughs> it fits. Well, are you uh, kind of like Stan Friedman in the sense of a nuts and bolts kind of man, or, uh, you know, you're more, more into the Ted Phillips idea that, uh, They've evolved into sort of balls of light and sort of more ethereal sorts of objects. What say you? I'm I'm a nuts and bolts guy. Um, my favorite theory, however, is time travelers because that's a that's a very fun theory. Mm, <laughs> it is. Yes. Yeah. But but I don't think I don't think it I don't think it works, and I and I cannot think a way of getting around the the um, the conflicts of time travel. Uh, the paradoxes you would set up with time travel. So I, I just don't think it's time travelers. And, and of course, uh, it's possible it's some kind of interdimensional thing going on, which would manifest itself in all kinds of different ways. Uh, but I, 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 I think it's, we're dealing with uh, alien spacecraft, nuts and bolts type of thing. And I think that's the most likely answer based on all the evidence that's been gathered, which is not to say that some of the sightings might lead us in a different direction and there's not a single answer to explain all UFO sightings. Now, your next project you mentioned is, is a reevaluation of the Roswell case. Is that the next book? Can you tell us uh, about that? It's called Understanding Roswell, and it's actually available. It just came out in the last uh, week or ten days, I think. Uh, again, available at Amazon, of course. Um, but it looks at the case uh, from a, a slightly different perspective than, than all the other books. And there, there was a story that one of the... Um, officers at Roswell had disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle, one of the, the leading officers. Um, and I, I traced that down, and it really wasn't, a, he didn't disappear in the Bermuda Triangle, but he did disappear. 
um, I think it was the guy's name was Hopkins, and he was on a flight with a bunch of other people from Roswell, as a matter of fact, to England. They were transferring some of the information to a base in England, and the airplane went down in the Atlantic Ocean. They found the airplane within a matter of hours, and they saw guys in lifeboats and all of this sort of thing. Uh, the airplane stayed on station watching them and eventually had to go back to England because of fuel. And by the time a rescue craft got there the next day, or 19 hours later, everything was gone. The people were gone. The, the lifeboats were gone. There was just virtually no wreckage found. But it was way north of the Bermuda Triangle. It really had nothing to do with the Bermuda Triangle, but they did disappear. Um, one of the pilots was killed in the Korean War. Um, uh, I think it was Payne Jennings, which was one of the top officers at the base, was killed in the Korean War. They were testing some kind of big bomb called a Tarzan, and uh, with a B-29, it was a you know, huge, huge, massive thing, and uh, two of the engines failed on the B-29, and they tried to jettison the bomb, and it detonated, and they never really Jeez. found anything. Um, but it looks at all of that, so you get an idea of who the people were in Roswell, but but, but it looks at the mythology that's grown up around it as well, and the, the alien autopsy film, well, this is very distracting to the Roswell case because it has nothing to do with, with Roswell, but we have to look at it because it's part of the mythology that now surrounds us, and it looks at in depth of the, the Project Mogul explanation offered by the Air Force again, an explanation that simply doesn't work. Because the flight, flight number four of Project Mogul, these balloons launched from Alamogordo, never flew. It was canceled. We got the documentation to prove it, and yet this is what supposedly found, uh, Brazel found. And, and one of the things that comes out, and boy, I hesitate to give away all the secrets, but one of the things I discovered is that when Brazel went into the sheriff's office in Roswell, he took samples of the debris with him. And so the question becomes, if he had the debris and it was nothing more than a Project Mogul balloon or the debris of a Raywind radar target and a balloon, why is it Jesse Marcel, when he went to the sheriff's office, couldn't say, yeah, that's a weather balloon, for God's sake, guys. Why did they have to go out to the ranch to look at the field filled with this metallic debris? And then we have Sheridan Cavett, who of course, was um, the uh, counterintelligence officer in Roswell in 1947, interviewed by Colonel Weaver during the Air Force investigation of the Roswell case in the mid-1990s. And Cabot says, yeah, when I got to the field, I recognized it as a balloon. Well, why couldn't you recognize the debris that was brought into the sheriff's office as parts of a balloon if that's what it was? So, it, you know, it just kind of under, undermines the entire Project Mogul explanation. So we look at all of that stuff, and we look at at, at, at uh, how the story developed and who did what and, and look at all of that sort of thing um, very carefully um, because I think it's important to, uh, to understand, Roswell, there's a lot of people who um, have come forward with their stories who uh, weren't telling the truth, that they just kind of plugged themselves in. Some of them were in Roswell. Some of them said, well, I was, wasn't stationed in Roswell. I flew in to do this, that, or the other thing. And we have to look at all of that information. And I think we have to separate that from what really happened in Roswell in 1947 so we get a better picture of it. Okay. Where it stands now is that there is no terrestrial explanation for Roswell. The Air Force actually eliminated everything but Project Mogul, and I think we can eliminate Project Mogul. Mm. All right. Uh, I'd like to squeeze at least one question from uh, our good friend uh, Peter in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, Peter Shelley, occasional co-host. Let me take number two there, Ben. Sure thing. Uh, and uh, uh, Peter writes, Have you communicated with any of the witnesses involved in the 1973 Mansfield UFO encounter, and do you have any insights on it? Well, that's a bizarre question coming out of left field. But... <laughs> 
But but We're coming out in, of South uh, America, actually. Yeah, in in um, they had an, in with the Mansfield sighting, they had a problem with their radio communications, which so it made it into the Level Land book. There's a there's a section about that in the Level Land book because of the fade out of the radio communications, and I did talk to. Um, uh, one of the crewmen on board the craft at the time about what he had seen. And the other thing is, and I always point this out, Philip Class uh, investigated the case and he said, well, I talked to a guy who has extensive experience in helicopters and he said this, that, and the other thing. And I said, you know, Philip, I not only had extensive experience in a helicopter, I was actually one of the pilots. I went through the same training that the pilots in that aircraft went through. And I can tell you, as a matter of fact, what you postulate didn't happen. Couldn't happen. I don't know why the aircraft climbed the way it did. I don't know why when you put the collective full down, that's one of the controls, full down and should have caused you to descent. They actually uh, continued to climb. I don't know this, and I don't know what the experience of your alleged helicopter pilot was, but I don't suspect he'd been through the same training that I was, and I know that what went on in the cockpit was ingrained in everybody who went through flight school in that time frame. And there was no way that the co-pilot would have grabbed the control and pushed the collective, uh, or pulled the collective up to keep him from colliding with the ground. Because had he experienced or had he thought that's what's happening and they were going to crash, he would have said to the pilot, I've got it. And the pilot, and I know as an aircraft commander, I would have done the same thing. I would have assumed he saw something I didn't, and I would have let go of the controls and said, you've got it. So that there was a, being an exchange of control, so you didn't have the pilots fighting each other on the controls. So class's explanation about it doesn't work. But yes, I did look into it, and I find it a very mysterious case, and I have no explanation for it. Well, of course, uh, Stan Friedman and some pungent uh, comments about spill class. But in any case, we're just about out of time. Uh, Kevin, thank you so very much for another great conversation. We'll be in touch off the air. And um, have a great day. Well, thank you very much, and the same to you. Okay, very good. Then let's get to our announcements, if we could. Sure thing. Uh, uh, we'll, one or two. Yes, yes, the clock is ticking, but the New England Parafest is coming up, and that's a marathon event that runs from uh, April 9th through the 26th, and that's only a couple weeks away. Uh, our part will involve a live broadcast with a panel of the speakers on our April 10th show, including Mike Stevens, Andrew Lake, and Matt Moniz. Uh, then on April 23rd, my dad will present at the uh, community center in Kittery, Maine. The subject is uh, working with Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, this event will benefit the historic Hilldale Cemetery in Haverhill, Massachusetts, and you can find out more at EssexCountyGhostProject.org. And the Exeter UFO Festival is finally back after a two-year hiatus because of COVID. That will center at the historic Exeter, New Hampshire Town Hall over the Labor Day weekend, September 3rd and 4th. More information will be forthcoming. That's a great event sponsored by the Exeter Area Kiwanis Club to benefit local children's charities. And we will be there. We'll do our traditional live broadcast from the event on Sunday with a panel of the speakers. The subject of our talk Time Storms, with thanks to the great British researcher Jenny Randalls, who coined that term. Very fun event. So, looks like we're coming down to the wire here, Ben. Yes. What do we have for next week? Well, we have uh, cooking up next week. That's uh, April 3rd. Uh, well, no, no jokes from us, because it's not April Fool's. We'll welcome the uh, physicist Thomas Campbell for a look at his big toe. That's the theory of everything, as it applies to the paranormal. 
T-O-E. Okay. We leave you today with a thought from our own New England poet, Emily Dickinson, that that it will never come again is what makes life so sweet. Of course, uh, next week's guest might have uh, something to say about that premise. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul 